Before writing the current release, No Sudden Move, for Steven Soderbergh, Ed Solomon, my guest today, has had a long, storied career as a screenwriter in Hollywood. He started in a writer's room while he was still in college, and the stories he has about that back on Laverne and Shirley are amazing and hilarious. So that alone is worth listening to. But his career has so many highs and some really fascinating lows, and his lessons about what he learned when things were going well, like working on things that blew through the stratosphere, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, or Men in Black, or later on, Mosaic, the television show that got him started working with Mr. Soderbergh. Ed has so many good lessons. He is a writer's writer, the way his mind works, the way he tells stories, the way he approaches it, and the lessons he has today are worth it for anybody who is trying to write, trying to tell stories, or who just loves learning about how movies are made. Really excited to have you here again. Um, You've had a great long career going back to, of course, Laverne and Shirley, Um, and even before that though, I like to, especially with someone as prolific as you, I'd like to know for our audience where you found yourself initially feeling like I have an interest in being a writer. Did that, was there a moment? Was there a thing that inspired you? Was there a point where you thought that's something I want to do with my life? Well, I like to tell myself that I've never felt like a real writer. And I like to tell myself that the moment that I decided to be a writer was in high school when all of my friends who were remarkably gifted, it was a very unusual high school because it wasn't a performing arts high school. It was in Northern California and it was a football high school basically. But in my year, there were just, there was a group of kids that were so talented, musicians, actors, We had a dancer who, we had a guy who went on to go in in chorus line. We had a guy who went on to Broadway. We had a guy who was, went into movies. We had a a guy who went into a band that ended up touring for all these huge, you know, opening for all these huge acts and had hit singles. We had another person who ended up playing in like Wilco and also REM. We had a guy who ended up conducting orchestras all like within this bizarre you know, Northern California football school. And so not one person was the writer, quote unquote, I thought that's what I'll do. And I like to tell myself that as though I'm just an imposter because I've come to realize that that imposter syndrome seems to be the narrative that works the best for me. But when I really think harder about it, I think I always wanted to write. Even before that, I remember writing skits when I was in middle school, wrote wrote sketches with some friends. And I remember even earlier writing. And then I remember- Were those like perform? What was the, was it just for fun? What did you do with those? Nowadays, kids would like put them on their iPhone and upload them to Instagram. But like at that time, obviously (laughs) not an option. No, we made tapes. We made, we made cassette tapes, but- in junior high, uh, me and two friends, John Lax and Mark Bieber, we wrote a sketch. It was a conglomeration of commercials and performed it at the junior high school variety show. 
And it was the first time I got laughs, like big laughs. And I remember having to wander out into the hallway and sit down and lean against the wall and go, what is this feeling I'm feeling right now? <laughs> After, and how do I get more of it? I remember that feeling. But I also remember a moment when I was probably two years old, sitting kind of depressed in a closet and imagining characters coming down almost like from a chimney. And I remember telling myself, if I ever get really down or really lonely, those characters will keep me company. Now, maybe I was on the verge of psychosis, but I think it was. <laughs> That's a powerful experience. Yeah. Well, those both are powerful experiences. I don't know what, what to, I don't know what to follow up with first, but I think I have to say about that feeling alone and feeling the characters were there specific characters. See, I feel like I've had something similar, but it's been with other fictional characters, not with the ones that I invented necessarily. You mean like suddenly you were sitting there and there was Huck Finn or whatever, you know, or, or holding. Yeah. Or, or like that I drew some at p points in my life. Personally, I drew some comfort from the idea that there were these fictional character guides who you could kind of think of or, or aspire to, or, you know, I never thought of anything I created as being filling that void. So I want to know about those characters you created that were keeping you company. <laughs> Well, what's funny is I don't recall having created them, although they had to have come out of my mind, because let's be clear, there weren't actual animated characters dropping from a ceiling to visit me. Sure. But in my mind, they weren't of me. In my mind, they were descending above from above me. And I, and I remember thinking, they will keep you company. That's what I remember. But And I also remember the feeling, and I might just be projecting now, looking backward, but I remember the feeling that that might be some kind of calling for me. So the reason I started by saying I like to tell myself I'm an imposter is I really feel like it every day. Every day I feel like I don't know what I'm doing or sometimes I do feel like I know what I'm doing and then those those you know great feelings are dashed when I read what I just did, you know, or something. <laughs> so much of the writing day is full of uncertainty and being in what I would call not knowing mind. And there's so much, you know, failure along the way. And there are so many times where I'm just, I don't know how to write. I don't know what I'm doing that I, so I tell myself this, well, because you're not really a writer and one day you'll be a writer. And if you only can write this, you'll be a writer. And that's taken me my whole career and I think I've, I've recently come to realize not that I'm not an imposter, but that maybe believing that I'm an imposter is a tactical stance to keep me constantly trying to do better stuff and trying to just get outside my comfort zone at all times. If I only can write this or if I can only get that done or whatever. So at the moment, my working marching orders for myself are keep thinking that until the day you retire or the day you die, which may, may be the same day, I hope. <laughs> That's really amazing. I'm just thinking, all I can think when you're saying that is when, say, you know, you win an award for something like writing Men in Black or Steven Soderbergh gives you positive feedback on a screenplay you're working on with him or a show... Do you feel like an imposter in those moments or do you feel like 
Do you feel like you've tricked somebody or some or group of somebody's, or do you feel like okay, maybe I really am a writer? Or how do you how does the imposter syndrome manifest there? I'm sure we can all relate to how it manifests when you get bad news or when a project doesn't go or in between things. But you've had some really dizzying highs, I would imagine. I've had highs that I don't understand or believe. And I try to grok what that actually must mean for me. And the only way for me to process it is to come up with some incredibly self-deprecatory way of understanding it. Like, for instance, here I am watching Benicio Del Toro and Don Cheadle and Ray Liotta and Brendan Fraser doing a scene. And there's Steven standing there getting ready to you know, line up the camera. And here I am standing there holding a script I wrote, watching these actors rehearse these lines. And then what I think is, I feel sorry for these poor people. Because <laughs> they have to say the stuff you wrote? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only way I can get my head around it. And then I go, dude, come on, man. Give yourself a break. Like, this is amazing. And you've worked really hard to get here. And then I go, yeah, you're right. Okay, acknowledge that. But don't let yourself rest in that too long. Because I don't want to be that way. I, I don't want to be going, all right, I've arrived. And I don't want to be the guy who goes, all right, this is what I do. This is what I do. I do it like this. So next time the script comes, I'm going to apply my thing. You know, that to me is death. So, oh, so there is no, you're saying there is no Ed Solomon thing. It has to keep evolving. Like there has to be a new thing. There can't be one thing. I, I personally believe that once every, let's say seven years, seven, eight years, I have to retill the field, so to speak, you know? How do you do that? What's the, what's the well, like what are mixing metaphors here? How do you retill the field? I can give two examples of it. Uh, one was self-generated. One was an opportunity that came across the transom that I went, that's, that's it. I got to grab that. The first was actually, ironically, these are seven year jumps. And you know, it's funny, right? Don't, don't they say that every seven years our cells have completely replenished themselves? I don't know if that's true or not, but interesting Hmm. to note. I, I just was just thought about that parallel, but 14 years ago, I sat down with my agents and I said, you guys aren't going to want to hear this, but I'm going to be older and I intend to work for another 30 years. So in order for me to do that, I got to be doing things that are really much more complex than what I'm doing right now. And I got to do things that you guys aren't going to make a lot of commission on because I'm not going to make a lot of money on, but if I'm going to be in the long game, I'm willing to reduce my fee and I'm willing to reduce it by 80% if you can get me in the room on some stuff that people wouldn't normally think of me for. And then let me try to, let me try to win the job. And that was, well, this is interesting. I want to interrupt there because that is an interesting, it's interesting because things have changed a lot in the industry for screenwriters and for backstory for those listening in the nineties, the spec scale script boom was happening, right? And you were yeah. already had launched into the stratosphere with, with the Bill and Ted stuff and you had Men in Black. And so, you know, you'd established yourself as a big budget, big movie screenwriter. So once someone's asking price, I'm just giving context so everyone understands where you were when you said this and what it means. Once you say something to an agent who's earning a big commission on these big deals you're getting, because your asking price is getting high, to say to them, 
I want to do small stuff that people aren't thinking of me for. That is a big deal. Well, it was for them because one of them sort of not didn't talk to me anymore after that, but a younger <laughs> one uh, did. Right, because it's a huge impact on them. You're yeah. probably one of their biggest clients if they were screenwriting clients, right? I was in the category probably of some of their more visible clients at that time within a certain genre. Mm-hmm. And those were the things that I knew I could do, not just because I'd been doing it, but also I think there's something kind of, uh, it's a low odds gambit to try to stake the rest of my career on that. Well, also I'm, I'm curious, did you, were you taking the temperature or noticing the winds moving in a different direction? Because let's be honest, like what big budget movies and, and all of that had changes every more than every seven years. Right. So did you sort of get a sense of like, I think things are shifting. I think I need to shift with them. Or were you just like, I just need to shift because that's me. I need to shift. I want to be really clear. When I started writing in college plays, I wrote one comedy and five dramas, just to be clear. That comedy got me a job on Laverne and Shirley. That comedy, and I, and also I was writing jokes and I was writing and I was doing stand-up. But the plays I was writing were more dramatic. Then over the course of the next decade, when, when Bill and Ted happened and then, you know, other things like that, I worked on Gary Shandling's show, the first show. So I was doing a lot of comedy, but I was also trying. And by the late, by, by the late 80s, I actually wrote, a couple spec scripts that were dramatic. One got made, wasn't a successful film, but it led to a relationship with Casey Silver, the producer who was then the head of the studio that made the film. And I was, you know, I felt indebted to him and grateful that he took, had faith in me. And I felt bad that the movie didn't work out. So I always maintained a relationship with him and vowed to, you know, vowed in a way to make it up to him. But I also wrote over the course of the next couple of decades, a lot of dramatic scripts, spec scripts, very rarely hired to write, but to try to broaden my toolkit and to get better at the whole range of types of writing. Because what I didn't realize at the time was that all the steps you have to do to write a comedy, you also have to do to write a drama. But, but in comedy, you also have to be funny. I mean, you have to be truthful. Your story has to make sense. You know, you have to be writing within the, the physics of the universe you're creating. All that is really good training. So what I did with my agents at that time, to be clear, was not change my own internal creative path, but it was to say, guys, I feel my creative path <laughs> is ready to converge with the kinds of things that I'm getting paid to write. To the extent that I'm being paid to write stuff, I'm also happy to write on spec if I really believe in something. And I said to my agents, I know that I don't get money. I'm not going to get paid well. People aren't going to take a chance on me at, you know, at a high screenwriting fee. So I'm willing to cut it all the way down. And they did get me, the younger uh, agent, I mean. The one who kept talking to you and didn't. <laughs> yeah, he, he did actually say a week later, hey, there's a thing. Can I get you the room? He got me in the room. I got the job and I, I reduced my fee by that much. What was it? It was a movie called How to Disappear Completely that actually hasn't been made, but it's a script that I'm very proud of and, you know, was up there on the, 
blacklist and was, you know, a, a script that got me a lot of, uh, got a lot of heads to turn in my direction in that area. So that was 14 years ago where I was like, guys, I'm changing and you can either come along with me or not. The one agent who didn't, I ended up bumping into at a screening sitting next to him and he didn't even recognize me. So that's how little he talked to me. And that was about five years later, <laughs> seven years after that, ironically, coincidentally, whatever you want to say, I got a phone call from the man that I felt I owed a big debt to for having greenlit my movie leaving normal that didn't succeed Casey Silver. And he said, Hey, we're doing this little 10 minute experiment in a form that doesn't really exist. It's this little branching narrative, 10 minute thing. Are you a fan of Steven Soderbergh? And I, my jaw <laughs> dropped and I said, okay, first of all, who isn't? But secondly, I really am. Steven was my favorite director working, honestly. Yeah. He said, I'll do whatever it takes, you know? So I started working with Steven and Casey on this little 10 minute experiment and we finished it. And he went, you know what? I think this will work. Let's try and do a long thing. So I said, yeah, I'm in. So I agreed to do this seven hour HBO, which turned out to be, I wrote it for free, you know, on spec for a long time. And then it got set up at HBO, but this branching narrative piece that turned my uh, creative life around in a positive way, it was like the challenge was like an, it was an unbelievable challenge trying to come up with seven and a half hours of material that could work in any direction you told it. And every character had to be worthy of their own story. It had to work in, in multiple iterations, meaning if you went one way, then another, then another, it all had to work. That was such a challenge that it gave me what I needed creatively. It just opened up all the, you know, strengthened, I should say, all these new muscles, plus developed a relationship with Steven and deepened my relationship with Casey. So I started another one, a long thing, on spec in 2016. And when I say I started a long spec script, I, I just looked at it yesterday. I thought it was 530 pages. It turns out it was 586 pages. I wrote a 586-page spec script, which took me a long time. And while I was in the middle of writing that, Stephen and Casey said, hey, uh, we're going to do a, Stephen wants to direct a little noir crime movie. Would you be interested in taking a whack at it? And I was like, you bet I would. Met with, <laughs> yeah, met with Stephen, sort of talked through what the ideas would be, wrote what became No Sudden Move on spec. So, and now we're going to do that. That 586 page thing is finished now. And I'm doing that with Stephen later this year. Um, Where is that going to be? Is that going to be with HBO as well? Is that part of a... Uh, it, it's, I can't say where it's going to go because I've done an NDA and it hasn't been announced yet, but I can say, I am allowed to say it's next year. We're all set to go and we're in prep, but it's going to take a long time. To but I'm that um, should be announced soon. But, uh, but a long way of saying it probably yeah. took my whole career to get to a place where it could look like I turned my career around. But really, it was writing and failing a lot of things that weren't in my wheelhouse or that I wanted or weren't definitely in my comfort zone and might have actually been out of my wheelhouse, trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing, finally broadening my skill set enough that I would have an opportunity like I had with No Sudden Move to write something that's the kind of movie I really love to watch, but I never knew if I could write. 
Yeah. So I was, I mean, we've, there's a lot of questions I have. I'm, I'm particularly curious in the comedy play you wrote college and how that got you to Laverne and Shirley, who saw it and where, and I, what was uh, it, what was the jump from that to that, to being a, like, I imagine one of the youngest people in the writer's room on a spinoff of an extremely popular television show, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it was a nightmare. That was a really hard experience for me. I and mean, when I say a nightmare, I mean high pressure going from being a guy writing jokes in college and some plays to having to be professionally funny was very difficult. And I kind of fried on it in a way that was good that I fried on it because had I not fried on it, I would have stayed in the sitcom world. But because I, I wasn't good enough to get, you know, hired back into that world, I ended up scrambling for a while and ultimately wrote the the spec script that became Bill and Ted with Chris Matheson, my, my good friend and, and, um, you know, brilliant writer. Which is, a, you know, obviously an amazing movie, a genius, oh, <laughs> everything I, about it. But yes, going back to Laverne and Shirley being, what was, I want to know about the play and like how you went from the play to the show. So I was writing jokes for comedians and selling them for 25 bucks a pop. I saw him, there's a guy named Jimmy Walker that a lot of folks who are listening to this won't know. Gary was another guy that I was writing a lot for. And Gary introduced me to Mark Sotkin, who was, a, was an old friend of his who was a TV producer, and Mark was producing Laverne and Shirley. At that same time, I had gotten a gig one Halloween weekend, I want to say 81, would have been October of 81, uh, doing a stand-up at a strip club in Anchorage, Alaska. So I had a midterm on Thursday. My friend Ryan Rowe, Drove me to the airport. I remember. Got on the plane, flew to. How, how did just? I know that I'm just going down so many rabbit holes. But how did you get the gig at a strip club? In kind of David Strassman, I think was his name, or Strassburg Strassman. Wait, David Strassman, something Strassman. Whatever his his um, I thought that was his name. Anyway, he was just booking. You know, there was a circuit, and I was working. I was paying for college, selling jokes, and doing stand up. That's how I paid for UCLA at the time, which wasn't that expensive. It's not like I was, you know, paying for, you know, Rhode Island School of Design or something. And I, I wasn't that good at stand up, but UCLA wasn't that expensive. <laughs> but I was able to pay my my room and board at the time by then. So I was on a circuit of gigs that you would sort of chase money around for. And that was one of them. And I got booked at it. It was huge for me. It was 400 bucks and it was cash. That was gigantic money for me. But, yeah. Okay. But, and they fly, flew you out? They flew me and two other oh, comedians up to this crazy. strip club. It was an insane, I mean, I was a, I almost, I, it's hard for me to believe this is a real thing that could happen, cool. but yes. It was especially called PJs. Then, but- PJs, the class strip joint. I even still have the t-shirt from it. Um, I do. It's in my closet, this t-shirt. It's too small for me now, unfortunately, but it was, uh, it was a surreal experience. I did drugs I'd never done in my life because I didn't (laughs) even know what they were. I remember we shared a dressing room. I'm 21. I just turned 1981. You're 21 years old. You're in Alaska at a strip club doing stand up for $400 in cash. It sounds pretty cool. It's and it's Halloween weekend. So everyone in the audience (laughs) is dressed up and I think I'd smoked weed, you know, twice in my life. And I, they're doing, they're giving me, they're buying me shots while I'm on stage of (laughs) schnapps. So I'm drinking shots of schnapps while doing my set while sharing a dressing room with strippers and one, and, and the stripper 
leads me off stage. In Alaska, though. That's that's how weird it is. Yes. I get off stage and she says, do you do toot? And I (laughs) don't know what toot is. So I go, yes. And it turns out to be cocaine. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting invited to go party with people. And I, I had fantasies of myself finding myself face down in the snow five days later. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to stop now and go back to the condo that we were staying in only to find that the other comedians were having party were were partying in there with a bunch of other employees of the strip club. And (laughs) it was so surreal. And I I remember just hiding in my room, terrified. Uh, It was so surreal I came back and I said to my good friend, Brian Kulik was his name, who went on to become a great theater director and he now runs the theater program at Columbia. I said wow. to Brian, I have an idea for a play. Initially, it was a comedian goes to New York and he ends up doing comedy in a strip club. And, and Brian said, hey, what if it was a musician? We turned it into a musician, child prodigy musician, goes to Manhattan to play in the Philharmonic, ends up playing in a strip club and then in his Fantasia, this sort of magical, realistic play, everyone he feels he's let down in his life strips on stage and basically uh, reveals who they really are and why he shouldn't be intimidated and he leaves a free man. That was my, my play. Well, Gary introduced me to Mark. Mark came to that play. It was a comedy. Mark hired me on Laverne and Shirley. Wow. And my senior year. Now, Mark and I have a slight difference in memory because. And when I think Mark is right, Mark informed me about three months ago, because I still I'm still in touch with Mark. He informed me that I still had a whole semester to go that I didn't tell him about. <laughs> I thought he knew. I mean, a whole trimester. We were on the trimester system. The, you know, we called it the system. I thought he knew that I was no longer in school. He's like, no, Ed, you remember when you said, uh, I've got to go to finals now? And I said to you, I thought you graduated. Well, I might. It sweeps. You can't go to final. (laughs) (laughs) I went to the final and I remember he let me out for the afternoon and I went to the final and I remember having gone to class so few times that I didn't know where the classroom was. So yeah, I've had that dream. I've, it's never happened. It was like a dream. Honestly, it was like a dream. The only other time I've had that kind of nightmare happen in reality was my good friend, Chris Durenzo was making this, movie he made this really lovely quirky little independent film called barry monday and patrick wilson uh, was the lead in it and i think gene smart was in it actually but there was a moment where i was and i was doing a little cameo a little like two one day two line role for for chris in it i was playing a doctor and i showed up at my call time to my tiny little trailer and and they said uh oh sorry mr i'm running about an hour late and i had a lot of writing to do so i said no worries you know what just just get me when um, when you're ready to roll and I'm to- I'll am i be totally fine. You don't have to keep coming to the trailer. And they misunderstood what I had said. So I didn't hear from anyone for about six hours. And then six hours, the someone knocks on the door. Okay, we're ready for you. And they're putting makeup on me and putting my costume on me as we're walking to set. And I walk onto set. They put me at my mark. The cameras, uh, they put me at my mark. Everyone else is standing there and Chris says, action, the camera comes around and then I'm supposed to say my line. And I went, what the hell? And they thought I was this diva actor who, by the way, is there for two lines, who goes, 
don't call me until you're ready to roll. Like, which some actors <laughs> do, but, but not like that. That was not my intention. Anyway, that was the other nightmare experience. Anyway. Got it. And you didn't know the lines. Yes. No, that is that or like underwear in front of the crowd or whatever. But yes, those, yeah. that, that's pretty rough. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The crazy thing is that the insane experience inspires a play that then quickly gets you on a staff that then suddenly you're writing on a staff and you said it was a nightmare. Not because you were also still in college at the time, which you ignored, it sounds like. But it was a, it was a nightmare, I imagine, because like you're in a staff, you're competing, right, to get your jokes in to make the impression that they'll keep you for more seasons to stay in that world, as you said. And there's a lot of seasoned writers in there, right? Oh, God. There were so many seasoned TV writers there, and it was so intimidating. And I, I remember one of the head writers, who sadly is no longer, no longer alive, but I remember he came in one point and said, Hey, everyone, uh, we have so many shows. We have 22 shows to do in 22 weeks. So every day between 3 and 3.30, we're going to do something called nap time. And uh, that means that phones are off. Everyone goes, takes a nap. And then, you know, we come back fresh at, at 3.30. So every day at 3 o'clock, I just lay in my office, absolutely certain I was going to be fired, completely unable to sleep. And I bumped into the, to him. Roger was his name. I bumped into him at a Dupar's years later. And I, I sat down and we were talking and I was like, you know, and we were talking about meditation, which he was doing. And I said, you know, Roger, I wish I knew how to meditate because I'd started meditating at a certain point in my life. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know how to meditate during nap time. It would have really helped. And he's like, what do you mean nap time? And I was like, well, you know, nap time where everyone slept <laughs> and then came back and was like, really like refreshed. If I had known how to meditate, then I would have done it. It was perfect for nap time. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, you and nap time. And he looks at me and he goes, Oh, Ed, Ed, we weren't napping. We were doing Coke. (laughs) I was like, what? that's, that's how you were. Like, that's why you all had all the energy to go all night. And I I was like, nobody had anyway. It was a, that's, that, amazing. That's, that's why it was hard. It was not hard because everyone was doing Coke. I didn't even know they were doing Coke. It was that hard just because. Was it hard because you couldn't get your hands on the Coke either? And, you know, get the Coke. Um, no, it, it seems like every story I'm telling involves Coke. Either It either, was the 80s. I mean, you know. You're <laughs> doing it once or not being able to do it. No, it was hard because you had to be funny, like, 
like that. You know, you had to turn this thing on that I've worked with people who can do it and it is a gift, but I'm not that guy. When I worked yeah. on the Gary, Gary Shandling show, I worked with, you know, Tom Gamble and Max Pross and Mike Reese and Al Jean and Sam Simon and Jeff Franklin and Earl Pomerantz and I mean, Alan's White Bell and Gary Shandling and, you know, all and these. They can turn it on, right? Oh, Those guys God. are all, yeah. And not only can they turn it on, they can come up with stuff out of, out of the ether that you can't even see and you don't understand how they get to it. And, and also we're super nice people. So it was an incredible experience. Well, I guess what I'm curious about then, the reason I'm honing in on this, cause there's so much more to, I want to talk about Elmore Leonard. I want to, there's so much I want to talk about, but there's uh, particularly in the recent movie, like as a relationship and, and Detroit and where this all came from. But we're still like <laughs> we're still back in 1989. Mm-hmm. But I, the thing is, I what's or earlier, what's fascinating is it was hard, and you faced a challenge where you were in, in a way you were struggling against. I'm not like these other guys. I'm not. This is not something I'm good at, or yeah. I don't feel good at. Right, and That's the right. imposter syndrome thing you talked about, which every writer or so many of us struggle with. So I'm curious about how you came out of that and found the, you know, whatever to push on and do another thing. Like, where did you, what were the inner reserves? What, what do you rely on when you're feeling that sense of, I don't have what these guys in this room have. I can't keep up. There's some combination of insecurity and security at work. And I don't really understand it yet. A lot of times people will say, well, you need confidence. And I don't buy that. I think you need faith, you know, faith mm-hmm. that if I stay at this long enough, it'll work that. And I know I'm ambitious. So this combination of insecurity and ambition, which makes me go, okay, if it failed this time, or I got fired this time, I'm going to have to show them. I'm going to have to show them that they're wrong. Really. It's I'm going to have to show myself that they're wrong, you know? Hmm. And I mean, I've just, this is going to sound glib and I might be able to unpack it afterward in a more, you know, less glib way, but I got fired probably one less time than I got hired. You know, I, mm-hmm. or I failed a bunch of times. I just happened to get up after the failure and brush myself off one more time. And I mean, I, I honestly think that when I look back and I've said this before, so if anyone's you know, listening, I apologize for repeating myself, but I look back at my career and I trace its trajectory. There is, it is impossible to look at it without acknowledging that some of the major inflection points forward in my career were because of failures previous to that, you know, whether it's having been fired or not fired. I wasn't fired out of Laverne and Shirley. I just didn't get hired back into that. Sure. It had that not have happened. I wouldn't have scrambled for a year and a half trying to figure out what I'm doing, writing jokes again, selling jokes to game shows and writing for a game show, doing stand up again, trying to figure out how to write a spec script. And then ultimately, oh, and by the way, doing, doing improv with a group of friends without an audience, just to sort of work out finding those characters of Bill and Ted. And then a year later going to Chris and saying, Chris Matheson saying, Hey, what if we wrote something together? And then him and I writing Bill and Ted. And that wouldn't have happened had I not, had I been successful on the show. And in return, even if you look at leaving normal, a spec script that I worked really hard on to try to change the trajectory of my career after Bill and Ted, 
The movie didn't succeed, but it developed a relationship with me and Casey Silver, which led to Mosaic. Now, Mosaic was 13, 14 years later. No. Yeah. Wait, no, sorry. way more. More. It was 1990, 2013. Yeah. 23 years later. Yeah, it was way more. <laughs> but it's directly attributable to the failure yeah. that was leaving normal. Meaning, you can, we often look at what people tell us are the gateways for our career, whether it's a, it's a competition for writing or a festival or a place to submit your script or something online. And they say, these are the entry points or film school. Even I didn't go to film school. This is called no film school. I never yeah. went to film school. We often look at these supposed gateways and think those are our ways in. The truth is we make our own gateways. Right. And then if they close, we think it's over. Right. But that's yes. the fallacy. Yeah. It's a complete fallacy. If I look back at my career, everything positive happened because either I made my own work and put it up, meaning selling jokes required me to go to someone and say, would you like to buy jokes? That began the confidence that led to me doing stand up at the UCLA Comedy Club, which we had Gary Shandling come to. If I hadn't been going out there doing stand up, I wouldn't have met Gary. Gary wouldn't have invited me to write with for him. You know, continue and if I continue on that trajectory, you either make your own work. That play that Mark Sockin came to was where students put on their own plays, not yeah. through the theater department, but rather through a separate ancillary set of events. We made our own work and mounted it. And so so I can look back. I don't think one standard, uh, let's call them a gate gateway, you know, is, yeah. I don't think I went through one standard gateway. I think every launch point for my career had to do with either cr making my own work, i.e. Chris and me and four of our, and uh, three of our other friends going out and performing improv without an audience to try to just work ourselves out, you know, created the characters of Bill and Ted or tr making that one act play called strip joint, you know, that, that this guy ended up coming to. So it's either making your own work and essentially going, I don't care what other people think are the ways in, I'm just going to make my stuff and put it up and other people will come to it. Either that or having a relationship with failure, which is to say, not letting it defeat you, but rather letting it either teach you a lesson about what you're doing wrong or make you get up and go stronger because you're so determined. That idea of approaching recently we're taught was talking on this podcast to Ben Mankowitz from TCM because they're doing a series on um, Bonfire of the Vanities in the movie. And, and we were talking about this idea of failure in film. It's very hard to make a really good movie. It's very hard to judge what a success or failure is. And we learn more from failure. Right. And that's more true for writers, I think, than anybody. But you've had, I'm curious, when you have something that's super successful, like say, you know, Men in Black, right. um, what do you learn? How do you grow from that? How we've talked a little bit about how you respond to the, okay, I got knocked down and how you get back up. When you're up and when things are going really well, what, is there a way you still learn? Is there a way, is there, is there danger? That is a great question. And the answer is something that I've never thought about before. Men in Black 
is a series of failures that culminated in success. <laughs> so it's always a failure. I like where we're going here. This is very true. This is uh, close to my own belief system, but go ahead. <laughs> true. I really mean it. Meaning I was fired four times. I was hired five times. I, I got rewritten. At one point, Dave Kep wrote a, a part of it and I was like, fuck, he did something I didn't know how to do. He broke the villain out into a kind of his own arc. And I was like, okay, learned. I learned from a great writer. I went back and, and rewrote, but that was a failure, and it was all. Can you tell me more about how that happened? Because he's yeah. People who don't know David Kep, another like big screenwriting name, has done tons of big budget movies like you. So you did a draft, and they took it away I, from you, handed it to him. I, to I get worked it. for a couple of years on it. I created the movie and wrote a bunch of drafts. I got fired for a variety of reasons, including. Tommy Lee Jones stepped into the movie and he and I didn't hit it off too well because he wanted it to be a drama. And I, I thought it wasn't good enough science fiction to be a a drama. And uh, I ended up getting kind of put put aside for a a few weeks Mm -hmm. and Dave came in to, to do a more muscular pass and opened, it broke open the spine of it in a certain way that I thought was really effective and good. And in a way I would not have been able to do it, but then I was brought back in and then I was fired again uh, after a few more drafts. And then I was brought back in. I might, I might've only been fired three times, but I just remember then getting you know brought back in on set. And at the end of the day, I feel like that's a script that is, I mean, I feel like that's a script that I really did right. There's another movie, Charlie's Angels, where I was fired from. I have a credit on um, a lot of writers came in after me, but I don't feel that uh, I, I just credit on that movie, even though it was a successful film. But that's I, I, guilt stuff too, right? It's just partly about who's on it when. It's not about what the finished product is or how many words you actually wrote. I think it was because I was the original, me and Ryan Rowe were the original writers and a bunch of writers came in after us. And then John August was the last writer. And I think most of the great stuff is Ryan Rowe and John August in that movie. And uh, not me, not me, even though yeah, it was a hit film and it was well-reviewed, but not because of me. Um, when, when you, when you, t- this is something I want to follow up on in the men in black story. So another writer came in, did something that you th- said you both couldn't do, but also opened you up to learning something. I yeah. think that's a really valuable lesson for anybody out there in the world, in any field that your instinct was not, you weren't angry or jealous, or if you were, those were all superseded by, oh, I can learn something here. I can get better at what I do here. Well, let me, let me, let me be clear, because that's another terrific question or statement. I don't know which one that was, but regardless, it was- a question, sort of. I'm trying to make it a question. <laughs> well, it, it, it's a terrific observation, because at the time, I was devastated and embarrassed and thought- Oh shit, look what he did. I also wrote a long memo, not after David. There was another writer that came in and kind of booted it, like after Dave, like just really booted it. And 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 I wrote a memo on that other writer's draft, which later when I was rehired, Barry laughed and said, That memo, that memo was what got you more fired. <laughs> <laughs> we used that memo as the basis to, for the rewrite. So in a way, it was actually a successful memo, but not 
not in uh, not in its presentation. It was basically here. Yeah, I actually still have it. It was here's what I think is wrong, and this is what I think needs to to be fixed. And again, nothing against Dave's work. It was these other people that that did a thing. But the point I am, I'm making is, at the time, I didn't feel good about it. I took it emotionally. I was actually quite grateful to be brought back, and I worked really hard coming back. In hindsight, I was able to go once. Once the sort of pain had worn off, I was yeah. able to go, interesting what he did. Interesting what yeah. he did that I couldn't do. And I look back at it now, especially now that I'm at a place where I have had decades of going, okay, I can't do this. How do I learn how to do it? And I look at every script now as a chance to take away new lessons the harder the challenge, the more I learn. And, and for the last 15, 20 years, everything I write, my goal is to be a better writer on the other end of it. So Mosaic was absolutely that. No Sudden Move was absolutely that. I came out of No Sudden Move a better writer than I was going in. But now I think what I've developed more than a skill set for writing is a skill set for learning how to write as I write. So I felt like with No Sudden Move, it's a style I hadn't really worked in a kind of noir style. It's a style I love to watch and always wanted a chance to write. And it took the faith of Steven and our experience on Mosaic together for him to have the faith in me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So it's interesting. You've written some complicated plots or you've started to write some of these way more complicated plots, but this is the kind of genre or piece that doesn't really fall in line with a lot of the other things you've written or the things you started out with. And I, like I said earlier or hinted at, like I saw so much of Elmore Leonard, who I love as a novelist in it, just Detroit crime. And I was thinking, I'm really curious what those early conversations you and Steven Soderbergh had about what this was going to be were like and how you approached this challenge. I'd read Elmore Leonard, of course, but uh, he was not as much of an influence for me on this. It was more the the seventies noir films like uh, Get Carter and Point Blank. Yeah, these early seventies. It was the novels of George Simenon. I don't know how you pronounce it, but I remember reading. I think it was called The Hangman of St. Fulian and uh, yeah. McGrath goes to school and McGrath has scruples and a bunch of the George Simonon novels is French. He's a French novelist. They're short. They're really yeah. fun. I watched Rafifi. I watched a Japanese film called Black Text Car. I, you know, I, asphalt I actually, jungle maybe it felt like a little asphalt jungle. It's funny. I, I didn't see that for this, but I had seen it, you know, and, uh, and, you know, read the, the books and stuff. And I, I, I love, I love, the genre. I love the form. And I wished I'd have an opportunity to actually write something in that. And uh, I think it was more of a natural extension out of Mosaic, which was a murder mystery sort of story that was seven hours long. And I think both having had that 
made and having had to have written that, that was a 450-page script. And I was also in the middle of writing a what became that 586-page spec script that Stephen had been reading while I was writing it. So I feel like I had started to be working in those you know, in that arena, but truly, I think the thing that I've picked up along the way more than anything is, is what do I need is the ability to tell myself what I might need to do to learn how to do the thing I'm about to write. Because at the beginning of every script I start, I have no idea how to do it. And I like being in that place. And in fact, when I have felt like, oh, I got this, I know exactly what this is. That's bad. That's <laughs> You would so what are the ways? Tell, tell how. What are the ways you like with no sudden move? You were like, I need to learn how to do this. There are things I need to learn. What are the ways you learn them in this instance? For so okay, every project teaches me something new. I and I'm going to get to your question one second by way of saying yeah. I just turned in a romantic comedy to Netflix and I learned a gigantic thing about point of view. And about what information you give to an audience and when. And I learned a gigantic thing about how, how I carry certain ideas in my head as a writer of what people are going to see. But when I withhold that information for too long, it's not as satisfying as if I give the information sooner. And I know that will mean nothing to someone because no one's to anyone listening because no one's read this script. But the point I'm making is. Each script teaches me something different. No sudden move where you asked, how did I teach myself these things and what did I learn? So the marching orders were, let's write a very spare noir story. Now it didn't end up being super spare, but- It's quite complex, yeah. (laughs) It is. And that part of it is because I don't think at the end of the day, I- know how to write something super (laughs) the real reason is the the actors were so incredibly gifted and 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 were were inhabiting these characters in such a rich way that we just kept adding stuff for them amazing amazing talent collection but you've had a lot of that those kinds of movies in your in your past but yes (laughs) there's another one but that was one reason but the thing specifically that i learned on this one were uh were about narrative that is not overly set up narrative that trusts the audience to be smarter than often films trust an audience to be and then in terms of specific writing style, I outlined this film in this form of kind of a beat sheet. And then I wrote out a sequence, which I've never been able to do. That was a big one. Also, the point of view of the film jumped and shifted. So now we're in what became Don Cheadle, you know, Don, you know, Kurt, which we actually wrote for Don, but Don's point of view. Now we're in Benicio's point of view, now, you know, yeah. et cetera. And I learned a lot about how to write out a sequence and why in a way that's very freeing. I hadn't done that before and it really opened me up in terms, it sped my process up as well as opened me up to being less kind of anal as I write, meaning I used to feel that I had had to do page 41 to do page 42. Yeah. So that was very freeing. And... I also learned just a ton about writing certain types of characters that I'd never written. And 
Can I, I follow up on point of view? Cause you mentioned it with yeah. the rom-com that you turned in and you mentioned something that you, you, you suggested was sort of like esoteric, like, or conceptual, like I telling when I show an audience something, but I feel like this is one of the most important things in, in any story or in storytelling is, is when, when you reveal what and how far ahead of the characters your audience is or how mm-hmm. far ahead of your audience the characters are. And I always think about North by Northwest and Hitchcock because he was a master of many things, but definitely his movies like mastered that, like, what do you know? What do you don't know? And who knows what? And yep. that seems like something you've been dealing with, with these projects and you suggest you learn some important things, but I'm just curious and I'm, and I'm sure all of our writers listening are as well. Like, What's your, it, it can be dizzying, I think, to try to figure out what the right approach is. So do you have a method by which you decide what the audience will know and when? How do you make those deci- that decision? Like, I'm going to hold this back from them or they're smart enough to know. Like, I'm going to treat them as, as though they understand, like those kinds of things. Well, I often think that when people plot movies, they plot them from a cerebral place and pump. One of the culprits of that are these screenwriting books that tell you that by this page, this has to happen. And by mm. this page, that has to happen. So people tend to write from the outside in. So first of all, I think that's a problem. And when you do that, it's hard to keep track of what the audience is already knowing. So there's two parts to that. And then if we have time, I can give you a few examples from some stuff I've been working. So the, the I two- have time, but you can go whenever. If you need to go, you can go. But this no, is I'm, great. I'm good, and you can cut out whatever doesn't work. And uh, you know, if people are bored at this point, or if you're still listening, by the way, thank you. I appreciate it. So there, there's two parts to it. I think one is point of view. You're always, always, always dealing with point of view, even if you don't realize it. Point hmm. of view is really like from whose perspective is this particular moment or scene or series of scenes. It doesn't mean, obviously, you know, what the character is seeing. It's just whose story are we telling as we're moving through at this very moment? And there is a deep part of it that's gut. Hmm. Um, But I want to talk about that a little bit more in a second. But the other part of it, and I think the most important part of it, has to do with a healthy version of thinking about where the audience is. And when I say healthy, counter to that is the unhealthy. The unhealthy relationship with the audience is what do they want? What are they looking for? What are they buying? What are they going to see right now? What do I think they'll like, but I don't necessarily like all that bullshit and and is a recipe for disaster. And that's an unhealthy relationship with the audience. A healthy relationship with the audience is something that feels more intimidating than it actually is. And it can actually, at the end of the day, be very, very simple. That is to say, you as a storyteller know innately how to tell a story because you do it all the time when you're not trying or not being self-conscious about telling a story, meaning How many times have you told a story about the crazy homeless guy out on the street shouting invectives or the car you saw drive into the side of a, you know, of a building or, you know, a movie you saw the other day or simply telling a joke. Right. Or the time you went to a strip club in Alaska. Or the, (laughs) the the time we all went to that strip club in Alaska and you guys did that 
coke with that stripper and then <laughs> had nightmares of yourself face down in the snow and went back and curled up in a fetal ball in your condo. Okay. <laughs> we know how to tell a story when we're not self-conscious. We know exactly what to say to set it up. We know exactly how much information to give. And we don't think twice about it because we're not, quote, writing. It's not formalized. And we know who our audience is and we know what they've already heard. Or, I'm sorry, we know what they, well, we know what they've heard, but we also know what they can hold on to and where their heads must be. So, for instance, if you're telling a story of, let's say there was this brutal fight on the street and you come home and you're agitated and you have a seven year old, what, daddy, what's wrong? Mommy, what's wrong? You tell the story. To the seven-year-old, like, oh, there was some, a man was mad at, a, at another man. And, <laughs> and they were, you know how at school when that thing happened and you and so-and-so, well, except they were using their fists, not their words, and they were fighting with each other. And it was really upsetting. And one of the men, was it, was it, how was he hurt? Oh, one of the men was really hurt, but then the ambulance came, right? That's one way of telling the story. You know your audience, you know what they're capable of, you set it up however you need to set it up and you tell them what they need to hear. But if you're telling your partner, let's say you go, all right, you know what, you know, you go in a very different way. You <laughs> don't tell the same story because it's a different audience, but you tell the story, I mean, you tell the same story, but to a different audience, tell it in a different way. So when it comes to, I think, writing a film or, or, or making a film, you're also having a conversation with an audience, healthy, relationship with the audience, in my opinion, is always keeping what they know in mind and what they're witnessing in mind. When we talk about point of view, the biggest lessons I got in point of view really were mosaic because we wrote mosaic or I wrote mosaic and we made mosaic in two different ways. And I'm doing another one like that now. Right. Objective and subjective, meaning a linear show where you're ahead of what the viewer, I mean, you're ahead of the characters. The viewer is ahead of where the characters are, which creates a kind of tension. And you were talking about yeah. Hitchcock. That's what Hitchcock does. Yes. Hitchcock yes. shows you something, then stops. Where the character gets there, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> and that creates yeah. suspense and tension in, a, in one kind of way. But Ironic when you, tension or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Something juxtaposed with something else. When one character doesn't know something, but you, the audience, know something is impending, that creates suspense, tension, you name it. Yeah. But when you're doing a, the branching thing that we did, the part of Mosaic where you pick a character and follow their point of view, that's subjective point of view. You're finding things out as the character's finding things out. It's a very different kind of tension. That's mm -hmm. actually a drastic version of it. But what we are often faced with is, when do I cut to something else? And what does that cut mean? And one of the things you don't realize until you've had a bunch of movies made is it's the cut to that tells more of the story than what the characters say. It's mm. this is happening and we're with that character. Then you cut to something else and watch that. And then when you cut back to this character, what you've learned from having seen that other thing, when you cut back to character A, is entirely different based on when you went to B before you went back to A. And 
That's the uh, old editing. That's like the uh, sur- that's the Eisenstein montage where he'll show you the same shot of a man close up and then a cup of soup and then the man again. And people said, he's hungry. Or a shot of a man and then a cup of something else. And then he's sad. Like, But yeah, exactly. You're right. That's like the building block, the grammar of cinema. That's exactly what it is. Exactly. And then that... Keeping track of those juxtapositions and what it means to a viewer is a large, large part of narrative storytelling. Much, 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 much more than, you know, inciting incident, rising tension, act break, all that stuff, you know. Like, and then I had one example, and again, this will be a little bit abstruse or abstract because I, it's based on a script that unfortunately wasn't made. So no one will know what I'm talking about, but I think the example will be clear. It was a story of three teenagers in the minor leagues of auto racing. And I introduced one character on her own. The central character, Anna was her name. Then I introduced a second character on his own Brant, And then I thought, well, because I introduced Anna one way and Brant one way, just mathematically, I need to introduce the third character, Joel on his own. And the story did not work. I kept trying it, kept trying it, just couldn't, it didn't work. And then finally something struck me and I realized because the character of Joel is actually, he, our idea of him mutates as Anna's understanding of him mutates, meaning he's presenting a version of himself that isn't accurate. And it takes Anna a while to realize it. I realized that my little math formula was screwing me up. (laughs) And that in fact, what the script really wanted was Anna is introduced on her own for seven or eight pages. Then we meet Brant for seven or eight pages. And then we're back with Anna and we meet Joel through Anna's eyes subjectively. And everything we know about Joel, we learn as Anna learns it until Joel betrays her. And once he betrays her and it snips that, it kind of wakes her up as to who he is, we can now cut to Joel separately. And then the script worked. And there's no rule for that. And I had to find it in the weeds. It was all trial and error. But that's an example of points of view, meaning you have an objective point of view of Anna, an objective point of view of Grant, and then your subjective in their experience, and then your subjective with Joel until Anna's character releases that subjectivity, and now you're objective with him again. And again, for, or I should say for the first time, how do you teach that? I don't know. Yeah. That's the gut part. But you do need to pay. That's something that they don't teach enough about in 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 school or in textbooks. It's, just, this has been, it's like you're giving a... You're giving so much good information and value about something. I've heard people talk about this idea. I've thought about it myself, that we do all know how to tell stories. Joseph Campbell writes about it. It's an innate quality of our being. But you broke something open when you talked about, I think, how we tell this, how, well, I have kids, how I, I would tell the story to my kid versus my partner or versus my friend or versus somebody who was actually there who was standing on the street with me during the fight. Like, and then the story is totally different because we're talking about what happened. So you've opened up all this possibility where it's how do you approach it with your audience? How do you relate to your audience, honestly? So don't I think be intimidated by your audience. Rather, 
look at your audience as someone you're having a conversation with and be aware of what they know and don't know, which requires, you know, a certain amount of internal work, but it also requires you figuring out how to get a better objective sense of what you're writing, which often is giving it to other people to read or, you know, you plus time or whatever. But, but the more you can view your audience as a friendly ally to, mm-hmm. whom, to whom you're sharing the story or with whom you're sharing the story, the less they will feel like a judging mass in darkness with their arms folded, staring at you. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. I, I actually think, yeah, I actually think once I realized that, I was like, oh, okay. So if my attitude can be more like, hey, come on along, let's go, let's like, let's find out about the story together. Okay, so this is happening, this is happening. And then, okay, then we're going to stop here because I'm not going to finish this part. Now let's go to this other guy. Now this happens and this happens and this happens. Now, you know, whatever. The point is that it's yeah, a yeah. mess, but you need to keep in mind what these juxtapositions and cut to mean because the other thing they don't tell you about is when a scene ends and you go to the next scene, the thing I was saying earlier, that propels you so much more in terms of meaning. We, we, we used to do these exercises in a fiction class I took from a wonderful writer named Kathy Coleman in LA, a wonderful writer, poet, and teacher, where a lot of people I'm sure have played this exercise called, I think it's called Exquisite Corpse, where you, one person writes a sentence, you fold the paper over, give it to the second mm-hmm. person who doesn't yeah. see that sentence, then they write a sentence, folds it over. It's remarkable how much sense sometimes these stories make. But what's also remarkable is the cut to the next sentence is where all the information comes. That's the same with film. And that's the thing to be paying attention to as a film writer, that and how you, how it's really about what actors, therefore, you know, what characters as inhabited by actors want in any given moment. What does a character want and why are Scene. Yeah, your understanding or your interest in it as the relationship between the screenwriting, which is the roadmap or the blueprint and the finished product, which is the cut, whatever you, however you want to call it. You've worked with some of the greatest directors ever. I mean, Mike Nichols, you know, Steven Soderbergh, like there's just so many, but I imagine that it's probably informed some of this approach, but also like I'm sure Steven Soderbergh appreciates on some level that you approach it this way, that you're not thinking about it like what are the characters saying or my words on the page, but you're thinking about it in terms of cuts being told in the story. Well, you know, I'm lucky in that I've had things mounted, made, put on their feet. I've learned, I've learned the hard way. And when you said, you know, you learn more from failure than success, you absolutely do. Success, quote unquote, whatever that is, gives you the chance to work. But failure gives you the chance to make better work. And I've learned from so many people, but the thing you've learned more than anything from is having things put up on their feet and run through the, you know, instrument of actors. And so if you're a new writer, I would say... And it's hard work and, and, and people don't want to do it because they often want to stay in the safe sanctity and safety of their own brain. Yeah. Guess what? It's a prison in there and you're never getting out. If you stay in there, never in your works, never getting out. But if you can get other people 
to say your words out loud and listen. If you can get into a group, like if you're a writer and you're working in a town and you don't have a lot of folks, like a town that doesn't have a big film community, I'm sure there are others that are like you. Or if you're working in a town that has a big film community, but you don't have a lot of experience yet, the more you can seek out like-minded folks who will work with you, the better, especially early on. And the more you can have your work read out loud, then even more importantly, mount it, get it up on its feet, direct a few scenes of your own writing, have someone else direct it, see what that does, film it with your phone and edit it, see what that does. I would, without question, if you're a writer, even if you're the crappiest actor in the world, take a few acting classes. I'm not kidding you. It'll change the way you write. We are writing for actors to perform, you know, take acting classes. I would take an editing class and I would take a cinematography class. The other thing I would do is I would watch some of your very favorite movies, the ones that really inspire you. And then I would put them on the corner of your computer. You know, I'd just buy it on iTunes or download it or watch it on Netflix or whatever put it on the top right or left or wherever you want on your computer and then open whatever you write in final draft or whatever you write in transcribe the movie. Huh. It'll take you get along. It'll take you six hours, five hours running the work of Patty Chayefsky or Robert town or you, or whoever is your favorite writer through your own fingers and your own brain and your own body and internalizing what they did will teach you so many things. It'll teach I've never you- heard that, and that sounds like such a good idea. <laughs> I've never heard anybody suggest it. What can I? I know we've gone way over, but I want to ask you: well, What were the movies that? It, when have you ever done it? And what? Which movies do you put on and do it with? Yes, I have done it. I did it by accident. I'll tell you how I did it. The thing that I learned from it was one: how how little dialogue you actually need. <laughs> you need a lot more. Two, how little stage direction you actually need. Three, how short scenes are and and how they do not have a beginning, middle, and end, but just a middle, usually a scene, usually, not always. And the importance of sequences, like how things are really a juxtaposition of eight, or can be two, can be three, can be nine, can be 40 scenelets, you know, little pieces to form a sequence. But how I discovered it was I was adapting a Swiss film. That movie I told you about that kind of the, that I got in the room for, that I took the 80% pay cut for, the one that right, you know, right. it was based on a Swiss film for which there was no final draft version for me to you know, rewrite from. So I said, why don't I do it myself? And that's where I first learned it. And I... I put it up on the corner of my computer and I just typed it as fast as I could. And I went, Oh my God, I got to do this on other things. So I did it for Chinatown and I realized, Oh, this is interesting. Every time a character would naturally, every time my own body is a writer, my own brain is a writer would have me complete a sentence or complete a thought to its natural conclusion Robert Town, in his inimitable genius, interrupts the scene. So we, so so we're left hanging. And I actually asked him about that when I when I. What did he say? He, <laughs> I'm so curious. He said that was my impulse too, was to carry it further. But Polanski chopped it up. He had me chop it up. I learned that from Polanski. Wow! Wow! Right? Interesting. 
But so I've done that on, on, on several films. I've actually done it and been blown away by what I've, you know, mostly I'm blown away by how little dialogue there actually is in a movie. You, mm. you actually don't think that as a writer sitting at your desk, living inside your own brain. And, you know, and then the other thing you realize is just because when the film is finished, the editors cut it into what's really only what's needed. Uh, just how little is needed to convey. And then you learn that other thing I was talking about, which is it's not really about what's said in the scene. It's what's said in the scene when juxtaposed with what's said in the next scene and the next scene and the next scene. And one of the many things I've learned from Stephen is sometimes we solve the problem on page 90 with a slight edit on page 21 and two ADR lines on page 40. In other words, <laughs> You know, I mean, you know what I'm getting at there. You yeah, know? yeah. But th this is all like, I, this is all great. I've read so many screenwriting books. I went through a phase when I was reading everything that Patty Chayefsky ever wrote, like his teleplays, because I was just trying to learn more about like how he does it and why he does it and his genius. And what you've opened up is like, if you try to keep pace with it, you will experience it firsthand. That's so cool. I love it. You it's run crazy. it through your body. And the other thing that's good is by doing that, you know, you really only learn how to write screenplays by writing a bunch of screenplays, unfortunately. And it's really important to get a few of them through you. And this is a way of uh, getting those muscles moving faster where, you, if, honestly, if you spent a month and you chose 10, no one's going to do this. No one's going to do this. <laughs> if you took a month and said, you know what, I'm going to do Three days a week, I'm going to transcribe a film, or I'm just going to do one a week for a year. Yeah, be amazed how how much you've internalized in terms of how a movie begins pacing. Yeah, paces itself. It, it's um, it's not going to be the same as writing your own stuff, and it's not the same as mounting your own stuff and seeing it and being honest about what's not working and why. But it's a it's a great tool. I love, I love it. It's so cool. Well, I've, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking so much time for coming on. And I'm really glad we did it. I feel like uh, you, you've been a great wealth of, of knowledge and, and good stories. You are a good storyteller as it turns out. <laughs> hey, I just thought <laughs> I, mean, I can confirm, but I know it's imposter syndrome stuff. So you don't want to believe that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I feel it's important to maintain well, the healthy, uh, the healthier version is let's call it beginner's mind, and yeah. opposed to imposter, which is a bit self-flagellating. -flag but right. you know, the self-flagellation is indulgence, and I'm trying to get rid of that, but I'm still doing it, and I've been doing it for forty years. <laughs> I'm not doing as badly as I used to, and I've learned tricks to kind of help free myself up. But the beginner's mind thing, I think I'd like to keep until I think, as I said before, the day I retire or the day I die, which is, I hope the same day. Thank you again so much. We'll end on that, but I, I, I appreciate it. And I'm excited for I when you guys do the show or however it comes out when you're done, I would love to have you back. We'll talk then, but I want to know more about that and talking about that medium because we do a lot of feature film, but we don't talk about things like 580 page scripts. So that would be really cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Ed for coming on the show. Check out No Sudden Move on HBO Max.
be sure to head over to nofilmschool.com, read about all sorts of things. Check out our weekly podcast episode, which drops every Thursday. Our interviews drop every Tuesday. Things were a little off this week because of the holiday, but typically speaking, that is our schedule. Be sure to go over to YouTube. We have a tutorial on night shoots that we did along with help from Black Magic Design utilizing their camera, and it's pretty cool. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and email us your questions at editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much for listening.